Everybody Googles everything, especially potential customers or employers, and a business or personal online reputation can make or break you. If negative search results or reviews are impacting you, Webamax is here to help. Our proven process restores your online reputation quickly and effectively, and it matters. Don't let negative results control your narrative. Visit GoWebamax.com and fill out a brief confidential form to see how we can help. Remember, if you aren't paying attention to your online reputation, someone else is. GoWebamax.com. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad... To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Welcome to episode 16 of the Red Seat Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Devereaux, and today I'm joined by Ben Carsley, editor of BP Boston and Xander Bogart's enthusiast. Ben, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing well, and I, I think that is my new preferred title wherever I go. I'd like to be known as a, as a Xander Bogarts enthusiast and uh, be introduced as such in all formal settings from now on. Yeah, you know, I thought of you quite a bit yesterday during um, the Red Sox Sunday night baseball game about against the Yankees when they kept uh, showing graphics of Xander's family and then breaking into small montages of Xander Bogarts, and they showed, like, really cute pictures of his face and all that stuff and i was like ben's probably really enjoying this right now yeah the weird thing is that if you look really closely i'm, I'm in the background of most of those pictures <laughs> uh let's hope not so uh for everybody out there if you're interested in following uh ben who stalks xander uh you can follow him on twitter at ben carsley uh, just his name there so uh, nothing too crazy there um what was crazy, though, and we haven't had a chance to talk about it on the podcast, uh, is the trade that the Red Sox made uh, for Drew Pomerantz. Um, when it happened, I was out in the middle of nowhere at a random brewery in the middle of the state, um, so I didn't have a great internet connection, and I was, like, fumbling with my phone, but, uh, you know, I was able to, to weigh in on it a little bit, not nearly as much as you have with uh, the articles that you've written, and they've been very good, so... I urge everybody to check those out, and, um, you know, it's been written about a ton so far, but 
Um, not discussed here, so we'll spend a significant amount of time on that tonight. Um, first of all, I just wanted to get your, your rough thoughts about the trade and, you know, if you thought it was the right move, because I think there were a lot of people on both sides of the coin. I know my first initial reaction was, oh my God, we just gave up Anderson Espinosa. The sky is falling. Um, and I've come off that a little bit, but I wanted to get what your initial take was and kind of what your more nuanced take on it is now. Yeah, it's a, and honestly, Jake, that's a very fair reaction to have up front. Uh, I mean, I remember I was on Gchat when I saw that, you know, the only news we had was Drew Pomeranz has traded to the Red Sox. And I was uh, Gchatting with uh, Brett Sayer and, and Craig Goldstein, who are two. Two members of the prospect team at BP, well, Brett's the managing editor now that he's fancy, but prospect, prospect focused guys who, uh, who I hold in high esteem. Um, and, you know, we were, we were sort of talking in the half an hour before the details came out about who it could be, and there was a lot of Michael Kopik thrown around. Uh, personally, I, I sort of thought it would be Devers. Devers made the most sense to me. And then it came out that it was Espinosa, who, you know, to me is in the same tier as Devers. And we talk about the Red Sox big four prospects, but. Within those big four, I think I think Moncada and Benintendi are one tier, and that Devers and Espinosa are the others. Yeah, uh, I agree and, with you there for sure. Yeah, and, and I I agree that we definitely paid uh, we paid a hundred hundred cents on the dollar for Pomeranz. I don't think there is any way of getting around that. You know, this is not a guy with a uh, uh, a very long track record of success. He's been very impressive this year. He was pretty good in Oakland last year. He had a period of success in 2014 when he was a Rocky, which is pretty impressive in its own right. But, you know, this is not a sure thing. And I think when you think about dealing a prospect like Espinosa, you think you're going to get a Sonny Gray or a Jose Fernandez or a Chris Sale, a guy like that back. The reason I've come around on this trade is because those guys aren't available. You know, the Marlins are in the thick of things. They have no reason to trade Jose Fernandez. Chris Sale is probably one of the best three or four starters in baseball. Even if the White Sox are rebuilding, they, they don't really have a reason to trade him, you know? Um, I forget who else I... I or just, Quintana. I, they, they don't even really have a reason to trade Quintana with his no, control. He, exactly. He's so affordable. You know, Sonny right. Gray is is having a weird year, and the, and the Athletics have no reason to, to sell low on him. So right. there isn't that pitcher that everybody else wants available. Steven Strasburg signed the big extension, you know? He was supposed to be the big name on the free agent market this season, but A, the Nationals are too good to have traded him, and B, they signed him to an extension anyway. So there isn't this sort of affordable young ace on the market. He just does not exist. So for me, Pomeranz represented a uh, an acceptable middle ground between these sort of uber superstar aces who are going to acquire two or three of Boston's big four, or guys like Rich Hill, who are either good but really injury-prone, or, you know, Jeremy Hellickson and some other guys like that who wouldn't acquire, wouldn't cost a lot to acquire, but who are going to be very marginal upgrades. So it was certainly a steep cost to pay for Pomeranz, but at the same time, uh, I think Pomeranz was the only guy, you know, sort of in his in his sphere on the market. Yeah, I agree with all those points. I, I think... You hit a few really salient points there um, that I, you know, I, I felt the same way about a lot of those things. Um, my initial reaction um, when I was really upset about it was 
I think mostly because I had so much more information on Anderson Espinosa, as funny as that sounds, uh, than I did on the current version of Drew Pomerantz. You know, he's an AL West guy. Um, and all I could think about was the fact that Espinosa is now 18 years old and dominating players in uh, high A at times. I mean, he's struggled there a little bit, but the stuff is just incredible. Um, and he's been doing that at an age when most kids would be going against high school competition. Um, they'd, so, be, they'd be in the draft. Right, right. <laughs> they would just be entering professional ball. Exactly. So we had that on one side of the coin. And then the other side of it was since Pomerantz has been drafted uh, all the way back in 2010 when he was a fifth overall pick, um, he had so many years when he was just struggling to figure it out. And I think um, that's probably when my prospect knowledge of other systems was at its peak during a lot of his struggles. So what I remembered from Pomerantz wasn't the guy that he currently is now. It was the guy that was struggling a little bit. And I thought back to it, and all I could think about was this is a guy who I've seen really struggle before. You know, what's to say that he doesn't fall apart and struggle once he gets to the Red Sox? Um, but I didn't really have the opportunity to look at all of the meaningful change that we've seen from Pomerantz since then. And I think you've done a really good job of illustrating some of that change uh, in the articles that you've written. But a few of the things that really stuck out to me when I started doing some research on him uh, were – um, the batting average against, which currently sits at 182, which is the second best amongst qualified starters in the majors, um, two points ahead of Clayton Kershaw in that category. Um, some of the other guys that are directly behind him in that category, as, aside from Kershaw, are Max Scherzer, Steven Strasburg, Jake Arrieta, Madison Bumgarner, and Julio Tehran. Uh, that joke is that is, that group is no joke. You know, that it's it's very, very difficult uh, to do that. And I think that that proves that on some level there has been some real change with him. Yeah, so I think you brought up uh, uh, two really, really good points. The first of which, uh, Espinosa is a much, much sexier and more fun guy to report than Drew Pomeranz, right? When you think of Anderson Espinosa, you think of someone who could potentially headline a legit first division MLB starting rotation someday. Are the odds of him getting there, frankly, minuscule? Absolutely. You know, he's in the low minors. He's a small pitcher. You know, guys like that, 95% of the time don't work out. But dear God, if he does work out, you know, he's going to be, he could be the next Jose Fernandez. He could be the next guy that we're all clamoring to trade for. Pomeranz does not have that upside. He is uh, a more mundane option to acquire, right? He's probably a middle-of-the-rotation guy in the AL East. He has a little more upside than that. He also could fall back and be more of a number four starter in the AL East. So you, you, you traded away a lot of the sex appeal when you acquired Pomeranz, and I understand why uh, you're, you're not initially a really favorable reaction to that. Type of yeah, the other thing that I thought about when, um, when assessing the trade was trying to put myself in Dave Dombrowski's shoes, and I think one of the things that Dave Dombrowski does really well is that he brings a lot of old-school baseball scouting knowledge to the table while doing a pretty good job, at least so far, of not ignoring too much of the sabermetric stuff at the same time. And when I thought of Anderson Espinosa and his talent evaluation on a guy like that, 
All I could think of is Dave Dombrowski saying to himself, there's no way that this 5'11", 160-pound guy who already reportedly had a stress reaction in his elbow at some point over the last year or so, um, you know, would be able to to keep this up over the long haul, especially as a starter. I think that Dave has a, has a pretty particular uh, type of guy that he wants. I, I would bet, and I don't know this for sure, but I would bet that Dave prefers taller, more durable framed pitchers. We already know that he prefers strong defense up the middle, you know, in traditional defensive positions like center field and catcher. Um, so I think that the evaluation was probably made by Dave that it was more likely than not that Espinosa was not going to work out like that over the long run. And a lot of people on Twitter who are pretty, you know, close to what Dave Dombrowski has done over the, the course of his career have been quick to point out that Dave Dombrowski has not been burned on guys very many times in his career. I mean, it's pretty much Randy Johnson, right? Randy Johnson's the only upper echelon prospect Dombrowski has dealt away and who he's really, really regretted. Right. Um, and that sounds like a big sounds like a big if but he's traded away a lot of a lot of guys who were top 25 prospects in their day who didn't really amount to much or you know and this is the point i want to bring up with espinoza even if this isn't dombrowski super hard betting against espinoza i think the the single part of this entire trade that is under under emphasized or underreported is the fact that pomeranz is under control through 2018 and if you could pinpoint one thing in the Red Sox organization, not just the current MLB team, but the entire organization. The one thing they lack and the one thing they have proven unable to develop is is quality starting pitching. So maybe Espen like maybe Dombrowski, like you said, thinks Espinosa just isn't all that. Maybe Dombrowski thinks Espinosa could be all that, but he just realizes that, you know what, I have the core of a team that can win in twenty sixteen, it can win in twenty seventeen, it can win in twenty eighteen. And 2018 is probably the very, very earliest you're going to see Espinosa in the majors. And he decided to take present value over future value, or really over the, the idea of future value. Uh, and that's a tough sell in a, Boston, in a market like Boston. Uh, and, you know, I was on Effectively Wild a few days ago, and, and Sam Miller and I were talking about this. You know, we've been groomed off of Epstein and Charrington, and you hug your prospects close, and, and you tuck them in at night. And it, it's easy to mock that, but... You know, that approach is, is, on one hand, what led to Bogarts and Betts and Bradley and all the guys you see right now. On the other hand, you know, they could have sold Cicchini and, and Middlebrooks and Michael Bowden and Matt Barnes and all these other guys. And uh, it, it's really, really reductive, and I wish there was a smarter way to put it. But Alex Spear wrote a column, I think, this offseason that's always stuck with me. And, and he was just like, you know, the trick isn't holding your prospects or selling your prospects. The trick is knowing which prospects to sell. <laughs> And right. it's, it's a very obvious and sort of, you know, self-fulfilling statement, but it's exactly right. Uh, the entire trick to sort of managing these assets is knowing who to hold on to and who to ship away at the peak of his value. So it, it stinks to lose Espinosa, and, and I, I had a heavy heart when I first saw it, but I don't, I, I think it's a perfectly respectable gamble on Dombrowski's part. Yeah, I think you, you make a couple really good points. First of which is, Dombrowski is probably the best in the business at making that evaluation, and he does it with, um, you know, some some cold objectivity that you know some of us guys who did grow up in that Charrington Theo era are, you know, 
it, it, it sort of shakes us at our core when we see it happen, but it, it's probably the correct move. And then the other thing is that those years that you mentioned uh, with Pomerantz, um, those are years that the young core of the Red Sox, Bradley, Betts, and Bogarts, are going to be cost-controlled too before any of them start to hit the market. So you're going to have the ability to spend a lot of money without spending a lot of money on the guys that are the core of your team too. So I think that's that's a huge point. And also the the, the thing that um, kicks in here too is that with Brian Bannister now in charge of the development of the pitching, um, this really gives them another two years to try and figure out guys like Jason Grom, who just did recently sign, and we'll talk about that later, try to develop that next wave of guys and hopefully do so successfully, and it buys them a little bit of time in that regard too. Um, so I, I wanted to uh, get into a few of the changes that Pomerantz actually made that were, were interesting to me. Um, I brought up the batting average against. Um, I should also mention right now he's 18th in the league in uh, strikeouts minus walk rate at 18%. Um, interestingly enough, that's pretty much identical to what John Lester is at this season, the guy who the Red Sox let away, uh, let get away from them, and a lot of people have been upset about that. Um, one of the things that I didn't like, though, when looking at his profile and some of the things that I think make him a little bit risky uh, as he heads to the AL East uh, the 10% walk rate that he has. Um, and then the other thing was uh, he's currently averaging the sixth highest uh, amount of pitches per plate appearance of any starter in the league at 4.12. Uh, that's while doing that in the AL West. So I'm a little bit concerned um, that when he makes the transition over here that that could skyrocket and that we could see some dice game Matsuzaka-esque at bats. I don't think that's an, an unfounded concern. Uh, you know, I think those are very valid. I think, you know, more so than the, well, you know, sort one is one is sort of a symptom of the other, right? Like the the high number of pitches per plate appearance is, is a symptom of the high walk rate, uh, and and that is concerning, and th and that needs to go down. Uh, I think what has really uh, made me a little more positive on Pomeranz is his stats against right-handed hitters which uh, I was just totally floored by. I mean, he's, he's holding righties to a 171, 250, 296 triple slash line. Um, and, and when you're that good against opposite side hitting, it does allow you to miss a few more bats uh, than you know the rest of us would like to see. Uh, I, I don't think Pomeranz is a number, is a front of the rotation guy in the AL. I think he's a number three or four. But I think that's what the Red Sox need. And I, I would have rather had a number two and you know, I sort of wrote about that. I, I was a, a pretty heavy advocate of the Red Sox trading for Julio Tejeron. Frankly, I, I still think they should. But if they're not going to do that, they at least need this, you know, sort of additional uh, middle of the rotation stabilizer. Not totally unlike a Rick Porcello. I think Pomeranz is a higher ceiling than Rick Porcello. But, you know, even if they just added another Rick Porcello to this rotation, uh, that's going to go a long way because the Red Sox have started Sean O'Sullivan and, Ro and Rowena Elias and, and this version of Clay Buckles and Joe Kelly. I mean, they're not starting quality major league pitchers or even you know, decent guys with a little bit of upside. They are starting bottom of the barrel trash. And a guy like Pomeranz, even if he's closer to slightly above league average than all-star, uh, it's, it's acceptable. It's not what you want for Anderson Espinosa, but it's acceptable. 
Yeah, I, I think you're right. I, I think right now that's probably what he profiles as, is more of a three or a four starter uh, in the AL East, which is really a helpful thing at this point. But I, I did read an article that I thought was really interesting from John Tomasi, where he was actually interviewing Brian Bannister uh, about this this acquisition. And he mentioned a few things that I thought were, were pretty interesting, um, one of which is that tall lefties do tend to peak pretty late. Um, and a few of the things that people have pointed out about Pomerantz as being unsustainable, his 240 batting average on balls in play and his 80% strand rate, uh, Bannister does attribute to uh, the cutter that he does throw. He says that cutter guys typically are able to beat those numbers. And then he also talks about uh, one of his best pitches, the power curveball. And the cutter and the curveball are pitches that he is throwing more this year than he has in the past in two pitches that he's getting extremely high whiff rates on this season. Um, that curveball is a really interesting pitch, though. It comes in at about 80 miles an hour from the left-hand side um, and, you know, with a lot of downward plane because he is six foot six. Um, it does seem like this guy, like Bannister says, could have some more in the tank and is really just starting to figure out how to pitch with this new pitch mix that he has. Yeah, and uh, Evan Drellich posted a really great a great uh, interview with Pomeranz very very shortly after the trade. And Pomeranz, you know, he, he's asking Pomeranz, "What has made you successful?" Whereas you know you were not as successful earlier in this career. And he said that number one, he couldn't he didn't have the feel for his curveball in Colorado, and he didn't really attribute that to anything. But you know, given what we know about Coors Field, it's not shocking to hear that, right? Right. And and second of all, he said the cutter. He said he found the cutter this year a little bit late last year and that really you know that that third pitch you'd probably argue it's the second best pitch behind the curveball right uh, that that third pitch has really allowed him to dominate in a way that he was not able to before and you know it's a small sample size I'm, I'm not coming out here and saying that he's the next John Lester but to me it lends more reason to optimism than a guy who has just been doing the same thing that's getting better numbers now you know, this is a man who has actively changed his approach, has changed his repertoire, and we're seeing the benefits of that. So that's that's where I gain my sense of optimism that he can, at the very least, be a mid-rotation arm. Yep, and he is now throwing uh, the same pitch mix as Clayton Kershaw, for what it's worth. He is also a tall lefty, and uh, they both have similarly awesome curveballs, uh, which is not hyperbole there. They actually are very comparable curveballs. Uh, at I this mean, point, so when you when you take into consideration the contracts, I think it's fair to say you'd rather have Drew Pomeranz. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a uh, you heard you heard it here first. <laughs> but you know what what all this really amounts to though is is that after being initially really disheartened by this, doing all of the research, and I have spared no detail. Um, I really do feel a lot more comfortable with this trade and the gamble so um you know for everybody out there that follows me on twitter i have come around and i hope you will too and i do hope it works out because there's still certainly some real potential for it not to but i think it's more likely than not that it will and and i think i think being against the trade is totally reasonable i just i want people to accept that it's at least a reasonable risk even if it's not a risk you would have taken this is not a crazy move by Dombrowski. I like it. So um, one of the things I wanted to talk about was uh, the article that you released yesterday on Julio Tehran and the fact that the Red Sox should still be going after him. 
I thought that was a really interesting article, and one of the reasons, I'm not sure if you did mention it in your article, but one of the reasons why I've been an advocate for them still going after Rich Hill has been this uh, this innings cap for Drew Pomerantz, and I know that they've talked about him not having any cap there, um, but he's already reached his career high of 102 for this season. Um, you know, Dombrowski thinks he can continue to go farther, as does Bannister, but I wonder if acquiring a second guy might allow them to um, not only for all the reasons that you've said that they should trade for Tehran, which we'll talk about in a second, but also to cover them against that innings cap, too. I, I think that that's a point we should probably touch on before we do dive into Tehran. Do you think that's valid? I think, so there are a bunch of factors in play when you start talking about Tehran versus Hill, and obviously, you know, I, I, I know you're not the biggest Tehran guy in the world, but, uh, you know, I'm assuming on neutral ground you would prefer Tehran? Is oh, for, for sure. I, I'm, I'm more interested in, like, whether or not you are concerned about that innings limit first. Um, so, this is gonna, it's gonna be a roundabout way to answer this. Uh, I think the Red Sox just need more quality starting pitching, and that's the one thing they can't develop, right? They can develop pretty much everything else, right? Uh, and they've proven an ability to do that. I think Teheran represents the one thing they cannot grow internally, which is a young, good, reliable starting pitcher. So uh, when I suggested they still trade for Teheran, it really wasn't as much a hedge against Pomeranz as it was, you know, this would be another good young pitcher who's not just for this year, but who's for the next several seasons uh, in which I see the Red Sox being a highly competitive team. In terms of Rich Hill specifically, if he's not going to cost a lot, I'm, I'm all for it, don't get me wrong. But A, I think he is going to cost a lot, and B, I, I, we, have, we cannot expect this man to stand on the mound. Like, right. that's, been, that's been his problem his entire career. Uh, you cannot have any reasonable expectation that even if you do acquire Rich Hill, he's going to give you more than 10 starts. So if we're talking about sending... A Michael Chavez or a Luis Alexander Basabe or a Travis Lakins for Rich Hill. Uh, okay, I can swallow that. But if we're talking about anything more than that, I, I, I can't do it for what might be only a handful of good starts. Yeah, I totally agree with you on, on that point. If the cost is anything more than that, we have to stay away. And I laughed when I found out, as I'm sure you probably did as well, when uh, the uh, Oakland Athletics were reportedly asking the same price uh, Anderson Espinosa as uh, the Padres got for Drew Pomerantz uh, for Rich Hill. I just thought that was kind of crazy, but may as well shoot for the moon there if you're them. Um, I, I mean, I don't hate the idea of going after Tehran. So I read your article, and the first thing I thought was I could live with that package. And a lot of the things made sense. You pointed out um, that aside from John Lester, Clay Buchholz, and Justin Masterson, the Red Sox have been pretty miserable developing homegrown starting pitching over the last 10 years. And this is something that a lot of Red Sox writers have dove into over the last few weeks. And Tehran has been a, a lot better uh, on the field than I think a lot of people give him credit for, myself included. Um, and when I was doing research on Drew Pomerantz, he started to come up on a lot of those same lists and one of the things that stood out to me was the fact that he also induced a whole lot of weak uh, contact. 
So I wanted to talk about that and how you think he might play at Fenway with that ability to induce weak contact, even though he is a little bit more of a fly ball pitcher than a guy like Pomerantz. Yeah, so um, as I said in the article that I, I posted uh, on Sunday, I think I think of the AL East, the Heron's probably more of a number three, right? Uh, I don't I don't think he's going to be uber dominant. You know, his his uh, his home run and his fly ball tendencies certainly worry me a little bit. But he does miss some bats, like you said. He does have a tendency to uh, to to earn some weak contact, and he can stay he can stay on the mound. And he's only 25, so I do still also think there's a little bit of upside left in him. Uh, so I, I think if you're looking at him as a, as a savior, you're, you're barking up the wrong tree. But, you know, we, we talked earlier about Pomerantz acquisition and how I thought that might be a little bit of a better version of Rick Porcello. You know, I think Teheron is even another level above that. I, I think he's a guy who could credibly be your number two starter. You know, maybe in an ideal AL rotation, he's your number three. But he's 25, he's under control for the next... Uh, four, three seasons very affordably with a very, very team-friendly option for 2020. Uh, it, there's just not a ton of risk in acquiring him other than the pieces that you give up. Uh, and I think the package I suggested was Devers, Erod, Owens, and uh, sort of the name of prospects that we just mentioned. Like, yeah, uh, Dubon. Uh, right, Dubon. I'm sorry, Matt Collins. I'm not sorry because I hate you. Uh, <laughs> Travis Lakins. Um... Uh, Pat Light, I think I mentioned. You know, basically the, my argument was that if you can if you can acquire Teheran without giving up Moncada or Benintendi, you should look long and hard at it. Yeah, and I, I thought about that package too when I read it, and I decided that I would certainly do that. I think that there's there's an argument to be made that the the Red Sox, with the acquisition of Drew Pomerantz and with uh, David Price, have also become a little bit lefty heavy. And I'm not sure you want to let a guy like uh, Eduardo Rodriguez continue to uh, develop as a power lefty in Fenway when you could potentially include him in a package to get a more finished right-hander like Julio Tehran. So when I thought about that package, uh, I definitely was, was into it. It does make me have pause to think about trading any of the top two guys in Mancata or Benintendi for those guys. Um, and you did touch on that too, saying that you're 100% sure you wouldn't trade for Moncada and 90% sure that you wouldn't trade Benintendi for him. I'm wondering if you've, uh, if, you, if you're standing by that. I, I would think pretty long and hard about it if it was based around Benintendi. Uh, I guess, you know, the reason I said that is if the Braves were willing to accept Benintendi straight up for Teheran, I think I might do that. Um, if that's really all they wanted, you know, I think Tehran fits more of a need. I think Benintendi is going to be a very solid everyday uh, starting outfielder in this league. I'm not sure I'm really sold on him as a star, uh, at which point I sort of see it as uh, trading one good player for another. Um, if they ask for Benintendi and anything else, absolutely. I think so that's Benin- the only reason. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, I just think if, if I'm going to throw a comp on Benintendi right now, my gut says that Benintendi is going to be Alex Gordon in his prime. I think that's pretty much what we've got here. Yeah, I don't. I don't think the Gordon comp is terrible. Uh, I think of Benintendi as uh, a little more of a, of an average and speed guy than Gordon was. You know, Gordon did have uh, 
ha- have a little bit more power than I think I see Benintendi having at least early in his career. But in terms of like a, a plus to plus plus defensive profile in left field uh, with a pretty good bat and a, and a great OBP, I, I, I totally I totally get you on that front. I just think that you know. Now that we have Bogarts and Betts, the tendency is to compare everybody to them, and I, I really only think Moncada is is that type of player. Uh, I love Benintendi, and, and and like I said, if the Braves wanted Benintendi plus a really significant piece for Teheran, I'm more than happy holding what we have and, and hoping Eduardo Rodriguez can turn it around. But if it was really just Teheran for Benintendi, I, I think I would pull the trigger on that. Yeah, certainly worth discussion, especially considering the inability to develop those guys internally so far. So I wanted to to move on here a little bit and talk about whether or not you think that the Red Sox are going to be done uh, trading for the remainder of this two-week period before the deadline. Um, Dave Dombrowski has been pretty upfront, typically, with... Uh, when he says the Red Sox are done, and he has said that they are probably done making big moves, um, but there are a few guys out there that they could still look at. You know, you mentioned Tehran, Rich Hill, we already talked about a little bit, um, but a few other guys that I think could become available are the two relievers from the New York Yankees. Um, they really should become sellers. I kind of always doubt that the Yankees actually will because they never do. Um, and then the, the Red Sox are also reportedly looking into some of the top relievers from the Milwaukee Brewers, uh, Jeremy Jeffress, Will Smith, Tyler Thornburg. Uh, Dave Cameron wrote about Thornburg today uh, because the pen has looked a little bit shaky lately with Taz going down and then Koji, you know, just being like 200 years old and that splitter not splitting sometimes. So I wanted to get your take on whether or not there's any real need in your mind for them to continue trading and whether or not you think that any of those guys are realistic targets. The, the Yankees are an interesting one because they are in division. Right. Uh, it's a really, really good question. I guess I'll, I'll answer it first in terms of what I think they need. You know, as much as I advocate for a Tehran trade, I, I like Eduardo Rodriguez, and I, I don't think it's insane to bank on him being your fifth starter for the rest of the season, right? Like, he has upside. He was... Certainly, at least a capable fifth starter last year. He's still young, so I, I think the I think another starter is the thing they're least likely to trade for. Once you get into the bullpen, another really good late inning arm would be great. But at the same time, you know that, that's already a unit they've invested very, very heavily in. They traded for Ken, Craig Kimbrell. They traded for Carson Smith. They traded for Brad Siegler. You know, Koji Uyara isn't. He's, he's not unaffordable by reliever standards, but he's not cheap. You know, Tazawa's in his last year before free agency. This is already a unit they've invested very heavily in. So if for some reason you can get, you know, I think Will Smith and Tyler Thornburg are probably the most realistic targets you mentioned. I especially like Will Smith because I think he's, uh, I don't know, 90% of one of the Yankees guys at maybe 70% of the cost. Uh, I've always been a, a Tyler Thornburg Tyler Thornburg fan, and if, if Craig and Brett are listening to this, they'll make fun of me. Um, but either of those two arms are great. I'm not sure I'd pay a premium for one of the Yankee arms. Uh, you know, it would be tough to trade in the division. Chapman, I have a tough time stomaching personally. Obviously, he'd be a good fit. Uh, Miller, there's been a lot about the Yankees trading Miller, but they really don't need to. Uh, he's under control for two more years, and the <laughs> it's not 100% the Yankees can't compete next year. 
know? Right. They, they're, uh, as, as flawed as they are, they're still only, what, six games out right now? So they have some money coming off the books. If they make a few decent uh, trades or a good signing, you know, they could be at least in the thick of things again next year. So of all the names you've mentioned, I, I think Thornburg or Smith would make the most sense. But both of those guys are high-leverage arms who are under control for the next, what, at least three or four seasons. So they're going to probably cost you a top-ten prospect as well. Yeah, I, I think you're probably right about that. I think the, the prospect would probably come off more of the back end of the top ten if it was to be um, you know, Smith or Thornburg or, or one of those guys. And I think I'd probably be okay with that price um, given the Red Sox current need and the fact that their prospect depth is still pretty exceptional right now. Um, but I thought that the Yankees guys were really interesting because of the reason what, that you just said. The Yankees really don't have to sell Andrew Miller, but they probably should considering their system is good, but it isn't as elite as it could be. Um, and this kind of brought me to a whole nother train of thought because I also heard earlier in the week that uh, the Rays, when asked if any of their pitchers were going to become available, um, th- they also said that they would prefer not to trade any of their pitchers in the division when asked if the Red Sox were in on any of their guys. So I'm wondering if this, this trading in the division thing is still as big a deal as it's made out to be. And it, it kind of seems like it is, and it makes sense that it is. Um, but we did see it happen with Eduardo, and I wonder kind of – how Baltimore feels about that whole thing. and It hasn't really bit them so far, but for a half season of Andrew Miller, uh, the Red Sox are going to have Eduardo for probably the next four or five seasons. Yeah, it's really, really tough to answer um, because I don't know how to quantify how big of a deal it's made. I do think it's a substantial barrier. I think that uh, you know if you... If you asked the Red Sox to make a trade and told them to rank the 29 other teams in preference of who they'd trade to, I think the bottom four would all be the rest of the AL East. Do I think that will absolutely prevent them from making a necessary deal? No. Just like the Erod for Andrew Miller trade you mentioned a while ago. Uh, I think it gets easier when you talk about you know really, really uh, complimentary players, players who are on the periphery of a roster, like when the Red Sox traded Steven Drew to the you know, there I don't think it's so much of an issue. But if you're going to trade a key contributor within the division, uh, I would not be surprised if the team trading away the younger player asked for uh, a bit of a premium because of the interdivision uh, nature of the trade. Yep, I, I think you're probably right about that. Um, if if the Red Sox are going to make a deal, though, it probably would be because uh, Janichi Tazawa does have some more setbacks with his arm. At this point, I am beginning to be pretty worried about Tozawa's health. Um, he has kind of had dead arm the last couple of seasons here. Um, Tozawa is expected to come back fairly shortly right now. Uh, Kelly is also supposed to join the pen soon. Um, he pitched two shutout innings to close out a game in Pawtucket just a few days ago. Reportedly looked pretty good there. Um, so those guys are both on their way back. Um, and that kind of brings up another question here about what the Red Sox are going to do with Clay Buckholz uh, when those guys do come back. Because right now the the, the bullpen is Uihara, Ziegler, Hembry, Ross, Barnes, Lane, and Buckholz. And Buckholz really 
is one of those guys in there, maybe along with Tommy Lane, who figures to get the least amount of work out of that bullpen. And I think those other two guys probably help you a little bit more. So has Clay Buckholt's time uh, with the Boston Red Sox finally meet, uh, reached its end? I, I think you hit the nail on the head uh, exactly, Jake. I think it's either Buckholz or Tommy Lane. I think those are going to be, you know, the next cut is one of those two players. I would probably cut Tommy Lane first, but I, I'm i not going to get very worked up if they cut Buckholz. And I know it's scary because you know, it's easy to imagine, you know, the, the Cardinals or the Pirates or maybe even the Cubs picking up Buckholz and, and turning him into a decent starter again, but... I mean, what faith do you have that that's going to happen in Boston right now? For me, it's pretty low. And even even two months ago, you know, I was still banging the drum that Buckles couldn't come back from this. You know, he was so good in the first half of last year. You can't write somebody off just because of a few bad starts. But he's truly been an, an untenable, unrosterable solution uh, this entire season. And like we talked about a little earlier in terms of, like, the virtues of Pomerantz trade, this team wants to win now. They want to win this year. They want to try to win the next year or two. And it's not crazy to, to jettison a, a pitcher who's in his 30s who's wildly inconsistent over that. So guns in my head, I'd probably let go of Tommy Lane first. But I will not be complaining if Buckholz is the next arm to go. And I want to talk about Buckholz's value a little bit here because I think that Buckholtz would generate some interest if he was made available on the trade market. As funny as that sounds from a guy who's just been completely inept the whole season, I think that Buckholtz's track record of success uh, would be appealing to a lot of clubs, and I think especially some of the National League clubs. Uh, in Alex Spears' newsletter that he puts out, 108 Stitches, um, he pointed out that Red Sox starters, when leaving the American League and going to the National League, have enjoyed really massive jumps in uh, ERA, or lowering of ERA, I should say, uh, when they've made that transition. So I wonder, you know, would Clay Buchholz be an interesting piece to dangle to a team like Milwaukee for one of those relievers, or is it at least part of that deal to get something done? Would Do you think he has that type of value still? No, no, I don't. Uh, you know, the thing about Buchholz is that rebuilding teams don't want him because he's old. And teams that are contending right now don't want him because he can't be relied upon. So I really, I really don't see any sort of trade value for Buckles at all. Uh, maybe a player to be named later, but I, I think it's very wishful thinking if you're holding out and getting a return for Buckles, uh, especially because other teams, you know, other teams can see the Red Sox roster. They can see the pitchers they've acquired. They know Buckles is pretty likely to be DFA. So I. I, I would be shocked if they got anything of consequence back for him at this point. Yeah, which, that, might, which might be an argument in favor of keeping him. Right. You know, he may may have a little bit more value if he is on your roster because maybe maybe they can figure him out. They've done it before, so maybe not uh, that outlandish. But I'm uh, I'm I'm saddened to think that we can't trick somebody into taking him from us for at least something. But who knows? Um, the Red Sox have made a pretty big deal on the prospect front though and i alluded to it a little bit earlier in the show um basically the same day i believe as the espinosa trade uh the red sox announced the signing of jason grom um who slots right into that number four prospect spot for me um right behind the the big three there um 
and really softens the blow for Espinosa leaving. The other thing that I thought about when he signed is that this is really the first um, super talented minor league guy that has been signed under Dombrowski and will be wholly developed uh, under the Bannister leadership, which I thought was kind of interesting too. So I wanted to get your take on that signing, what that means for the system, and whether you think that there this is really the start of a new sort of wave of pitchers for the Red Sox. Well, I think that absolute. I don't think it's a coincidence that Espinoza was traded the same day that Grom was signed. Uh, I think the fact that knowing that they got a, you know, another. I, I don't think he's quite as good as Espinoza, but a prospect at least in that same caliber uh, was added to the system is what allowed them to make that trade. The second part of the question is a lot harder to answer because you know as I. We, we alluded to this before, and I talked about it a lot in my articles this week and on Effectively Wild. The Red Sox have a systematic failure in terms of developing starting pitching. So I don't know if Dombrowski has fixed that already. I don't, you know, I don't have enough knowledge to know who he has replaced in terms of minor league pitching coaches and you know, uh, guys who are advising pitchers as they come up through the, through the ranks. So uh, I don't know... I'm not as worried about the raw talent because the Red Sox have acquired pitchers with raw talent, right? Trey Ball was the number seven overall pick. Matt Barnes was a first-rounder. Anthony Ronaldo was a supplemental first-rounder. Right. If you want to go back further than that, uh, Michael Bowden was a, was a first-rounder. Uh, Alan Webster was a highly regarded prospect when they acquired him. It's not that they haven't had the raw material. It's the inability to develop. So hopefully, in, you know, in bringing along Grom with Michael Kopik still in the low minors, Dombrowski has identified this organizational weakness and is taking steps to remedy it. Uh, if, if, the, if the inability to develop moves along, unless Grom truly is someone like the next Lester, the next front of the rotation guy, I'm not sure how optimistic we can be that he will ever sort of live up to his upside either. Yeah, I think that's fair. Until the Red Sox are able to actually make the change and start bringing a few of these guys along successfully, um, you know, we're not going to believe that it can happen until it actually does. So that's pretty fair. I think it, we should probably mention, though, uh, when t- talking about Michael Kopech, uh, how ridiculous it is that he threw a pitch 105 miles an hour that was verified on multiple radar guns at the stadium. I mean, that's crazy. The hardest pitch ever recorded is 105.1 by Araldis Chapman, and for all we know, he could have reached that. I'm still betting on the guns being hot, but even if they're hot, it means he threw, like, what, 103? So it's uh, it's wildly impressive. Yeah, it's just stupid that somebody can throw a ball that hard. Uh, really interesting. In, in uh, really minor, minor league news, Sean Coyle was claimed off waivers by the Angels today. Uh, no real loss for the Red Sox system there. I did get to see Sean Coyle. Uh, in person up in Portland a few weeks ago, and I think I turned to my wife during the game and said, this guy used to be something, and he just made a completely garbage throw from third base over to first. So um, that guy's really fallen apart completely. I, I remember when we actually thought he might be something. Yeah, and for the Angels, it's it's certainly a worthy grab, right? Like they have far and away the worst, the worst farm system in baseball. Coyle is, is an upper minors guy. Uh, you hope he turns it around. He has the bat speed. He has a ton of pop for a little guy. But the approach and the injuries are really what did him in. Uh, in addition to the fact that, like as you alluded to, he's 
either a second baseman, you know, favorably, or maybe even a DH. You really can't play anywhere else. So you wish him all the best. But uh, it says a good thing about your farm system when you can release a guy like Sean Coyle, who uh, who wouldn't have been in your top 20 or 30 prospects, and the Angels are probably snap, snapping him up as a new top 10 guy. <laughs> probably even top five. That system's miserable. It's pretty bad. One of the things that really struck me about Coyle, though, was that arm, man. That thing is not meant for the hot corner. So uh, really interesting there that that guy got picked up, but maybe he'll do something. Um, Moncada and Benintendi had to touch on those guys. They continue to thrive down in Portland. Um, But one of the interesting things that was recently said by Mike Hazen was that um, they have no immediate plans to move Moncada's position um, I think when we talked about this last time, I thought that maybe August would be a good time for them to start uh, planning for the future. And this is sort of the time when guys reach the high minors and start having success that you plan, you know, not only for position, but for team need positionally. Um, so I guess with the success that he's having, I'm a little surprised that they haven't started transitioning him over to third base, especially with Coyle, who was playing there before, now jettisoned from the team. Yeah, I um, I think and hope it's imminent. I think, like you said, you know, late this season, August, September, makes really only August for minor leaguers, uh, makes makes perfect sense as to when they should try to start transitioning him. You know, the thing you have to remember with Moncada is this is still a player who's gone through a tremendous amount of change in the last two years. You know, new, new, new country, new, new league. Uh, he wasn't exclusively a second baseman. He was in Cuba. He's sort of already had to like you know, fully commit to second base. So I get it. Uh, I don't think there is any scenario in which Moncada contributes to the MLB roster this season. So they're not that worried about it yet. Wouldn't it all be surprised to see him start getting a few balls at third base uh, very, very late this season, or open up next season, starting to get them at third base? Because uh, that truly would be his best fit, unless you want to start talking about him in, at right field or in left field. But I would, I would certainly give him a shot at third base first. Uh, he certainly has the arm strength for it. However, his, you know, his, his sort of his hands and his reactions at second base have received more mixed reviews. So it is, it's not a foregone conclusion that he'll be a, a, a solid defensive third baseman, but. I agree with you in that it's definitely something the Red Sox need to try, and I imagine they'll try it sooner than later. Yeah, my feeling with Moncada at second base has been that I just don't think he has to expel all that much effort to play the position. So I think that if he was to put a lot of effort in defensively at third base, I could easily see him having the ability to be a plus defender at third base, and he certainly has the physicality to get the ball over. He's no Sean Coyle. No, arm strength is never going to be the problem. It's going to be, it's going to be footwork. It's going to be reaction time. It's going to be glove work. Uh, I mean, the man is a freakish, freakish natural athlete. So raw tools are never going to be the issue. Uh, the third base is sort of an underratedly hard position to play. So we'll have to see how that goes out. Yep, and uh, my favorite position in baseball. So here Agreed. we go. Very much same. Um, upcoming schedule for the Red Sox, uh, another two-game teaser with the Giants this time. Uh, that happens at Fenway. Um, I wish these series with the Giants would be longer because the last one was pretty amazing. 
Um, we get Porcello versus PV and Pomerantz versus Kane. First look at Pomerantz there, so that'll be really interesting, and everybody in Red Sox Nation should probably turn in for that one. And then we get the lowly twins at Fenway Park, which, uh, you know, with Wright versus Duffy, Erod versus Gibson, Price versus Nolasco, and Porcello versus Malone, uh, in all rights with that offense behind them, probably should be a sweep, but, you know, you can never bank on something like that. Yeah, it's baseball, so it probably won't be a sweep, but uh, it's completely reasonable to look at the schedule and think the Red Sox should go 4-2. and two. Right, they take one out of two from the Giants and three out of four from the Twins. Yeah, uh, that 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 sounds about right. Uh, Porcello versus Peavy at this point in Peavy's career, Porcello should be favored. Pomeranz versus Kane. I mean, it's Pomeranz's first start in the AL, but it's against an NL team. Right. Uh, Matt Kane's pretty goddamn bad. So yeah, he's a corpse out there. I don't. It's just amazing. I've never seen a guy turn as quickly after getting a contract yeah. as Matt Kane. And it's so disappointing because he was so much fun. Yeah, I remember very distinctly that perfect game in 2012 or 13 it was when he was just completely in control of the baseball game. It, he was he was a ton of fun when he was in his prime. Yeah. Uh, and then against the Twins, you know, the only matchup that I think is even is Erod versus Gibson. Uh, but obviously our lineup's a lot better than the Twins. So uh, the nature of baseball indicates we will not complete a four-game sweep because that's really hard to do even against terrible teams. But... They should absolutely leave Minnesota with, uh, with three out of four. Well, we'll probably see David Price work a lot of 3-0 counts against really bad Twins hitters because that's what he does to to irritate me specifically. So I, I think he's doing that because he wants to make me angry. It would, if, it's, if that's his plan, he's doing a great job. Yeah, he certainly is. Well, with that, Ben, I think we've covered off on a lot and certainly given our takes on this Pomerantz deal. Um, for everybody out there, thanks for listening to the show. If you want to rate and review us, uh, you can do so on iTunes. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes and on Stitcher. And you can follow me on Twitter at DevJake and Ben on Twitter at Ben Carsley. Uh, so with that, Ben, thanks so much for joining us. And uh, we'll be with you guys next week for Episode 17.